Okay. Looks like most of the folks are almost in the room. There may be a couple of people that will drift in. Um, good afternoon. Welcome to the airports session at SASHTO, and our theme is uh, preparing for the future. Our speakers have uh, put together a session that's an exciting trip through the uh, near future of aviation. Some of the concepts may sound a little bit like Buck Rogers, but they're arriving already. Air transportation is on the verge of some major changes. I like to say it's, we're about to get through some changes that are almost as big as the Wright brothers' first flight. Um, in our presentations today, we'll start off with a discussion of some of the trends and perhaps some of the challenges that we face. Next, we'll talk about the next generation of aircraft coming to an airport near you. And finally, we'll talk about some radically new methods of air transportation. Um, starting off, uh, Dr. John Ekerton will start us on our journey, and he's going to talk about some of the trends. Uh, Dr. John Egerton is a doctor of public administration. Uh, he's been a pilot for over 30 years. He's the director of aeronautics at the Alabama Florida Department of Transportation. Uh, he's been in that position for 15 years. Uh, he, in the past, was a chair of uh, the National Association of State Aviation Officials. Uh, that was uh, right around 2002. And he's been a long-term chair of the NISEO um, legislative Committee. John. Okay. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure to be down here with you uh, this afternoon. And the first, what I'd like to do just to, before I start out is, is thank the Florida Department of Transportation uh, for putting on a session uh, that we could talk a little bit about airports. Uh, Florida has a, has a real strong history in, in, in multimodal transportation projects, and airports has been a big part of that down here in Florida. So I'd like to thank the Florida DOT and uh, Bill Ashbaker in particular for uh, inviting me to, to be one of the speakers down here today. When we first uh, started talking about what the panel discussion was going to talk about, one of the things that, that kind of occurred to me is that, that with all the discussion about reauthorization that we've been dealing with in Congress the last year and a half, that's the program to get to uh, uh, federal airport funding uh, uh, reauthorized by Congress, it, it kind of occurred to me that we, we have been looking at a lot of things, we've been dealing with a lot of issues lately that cause us to, to, to really have sort of a short-term uh, uh, vision right now. Uh, there, there are, as Bill said, some exciting things going on. And what I want to try to do today is just look at some of the macro-level trends that, that, that are out there that we don't need to forget that are out there, that as, as air, uh, airport system planners and managers we need to be aware of so that we can begin to incorporate these kinds of things into, into uh, defining what our state transportation system needs are for airports and also defining what our national air transportation system needs are. Um, briefly, we're just going to uh, go through and, and review what our nation's air transportation system is. I'm going to give you just a brief uh, overview of what the system looks like. Then I'm going to look at, uh, for a moment, four uh, macro-level trends that could influence uh, the future look of the system. And what I hope to accomplish, and this is really the first time I've really made a presentation that deals with some of these issues, is just to prompt some discussion uh, amongst uh, the, the, the groups that have our stakeholders in this uh, in airport planning and, and design to begin to look at some of these things and perhaps uh, become aware that they are things that we need to be uh, concerned about. 
Uh, first of all, the, the nation's air transportation system, just real briefly, it's, uh, it's, it's defined in what we call the National Plan of Air Grade Airport Systems, or the NIPIUS. Uh, it identifies airports that are essential in their at national air transportation needs and it identifies those airports that are eligible for federal funding. Uh, it's a real thick book that uh, we all refer to in our jobs. Well, that, there we go. Uh, some of the uh, nippiest numbers. Uh, let me just kind of run down the numbers real quick. The nation's air transportation system includes 5,261 airports that are open to the public. Uh, about 4,170 are publicly owned. Uh, almost 1,100 are privately owned. And there are 3,431 nippiest airports. Those are the airports that are eligible for federal funding. Break that down a little bit more. The system composition is composed of 517 commercial service airports, 274 general aviation reliever airports. Those relieve congestion at our commercial service airports, 2,573 general aviation airports, and for a total of 3,364 airports again. Essentially, when, when you're looking at the National Air Transportation System, it's basically built around all of the state systems. As states, uh, the FAA encourages us to, to engage in system planning efforts, develop system plans for our airports, update those system plans on a, on a periodic basis. Some states update a little more uh, frequently than others. Florida has a real good approach to it where it's a continuous process where they go through every year and update it. They have a, a real good network laid out to do that and a system to lay that uh, to, to, to accomplish that. What the importance of the state system plans is, the FAA takes those uh, various state system plans and then it updates the NIPIUS from those individual plans. So the state system plans are, are, the, are, the, are the, the, the basic building block for putting airports in the NIPIUS, taking airports out of the NIPIUS if, if they no longer are justified in staying in the uh, NIPIUS. Um, it's also used to project what the need of the mix of airports is and where the FAA needs to be putting its, uh, its um, dollars into the system. So just as we as, 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 as uh, people that are involved on a day-to-day -day basis with uh, uh, designing airports are interested in the mix of aircraft that use the airport, the FAA, the states are also interested in the mix of airports that make up their state system plans. And obviously it's used to make uh, strategic decisions about funding. The, the overall goal with the FAA's NIPIUS and the, uh, the funding it provides for airport development is to provide convenient access to a safe, efficient air transportation system. What are some of the recent trends and, and events that we've been dealing with? This I alluded to a little bit earlier where we've all been focused on the immediate, the, uh, the things that, that affect us on a day-to-day, week-to-week, a month-to-month basis. Some of the things that are out there that, that, that are being addressed uh, either in the contemporary media or are, are, are things that we're dealing with. And you're going to hear some of the other speakers uh, today talk a little bit about in more detail some of these. Uh, the first thing we've been, uh, we, we've been uh, working with over the last six or seven years is what I call unlocking the Aviation Trust Fund. That was when Air 21 and Vision 100 were passed. It started back in 2000 where the trust fund was unlocked. More money was released for airport improvements. That put a tremendous uh, demand on, on coming up with plans, 
uh, to improve airports on a, a nationwide basis. It certainly did on a statewide basis. So that's one of the things we've been dealing with. And then the upshot of that is it expires, uh, and it actually expired in 2007, but we've been working to try to get reauthorization passed. Instead, Congress has just passed a series of continuing resolutions. We still don't have a reauthorization bill that builds on Air 21 Vision 100. So that, that's been a major thing that the uh, uh, airport system planners and managers have been uh, dealing with. Uh, the other thing is uh, GPS-based air navigation systems. As Bill said a moment ago, we're, we are, it does sound kind of Buck Rogers ish, but we're going through a major transformation in air navigation. It's all based on GPS, it's based on satellite systems and so forth. So we're looking at, 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 at transforming the conventional air navigation system from something that's based on the ground, equipment that's based on the ground, to equipment that's actually based in the cockpit of that airplane that relies on satellites. Obviously, 9-11 had a tremendous impact. Airport security is still a major concern. Airline bankruptcies and mergers, that's been a major issue, particularly for commercial service airports where they have to plan for their facilities in the future. How are those mergers, how are those uh, bankruptcies going to affect the agreements they have with the airlines to provide gate service, et cetera? Those are some real thorny issues for some airports because if they're looking at a reduction in service, that means a reduction in their revenue. If their revenue is being reduced, that then could have a, an impact on them perhaps paying off bonds that they sold to make improvements to those terminal facilities. Uh, obviously, rapidly increasing fuel costs are, are, are a major immediate concern for everybody, and that has had a, a, an effect on rapidly increasing construction costs. Just like in all segments of the transportation construction industry, uh, those construction costs have hit aviation uh, uh, just, just as all, in all other sectors. And, of course, as I said, reauthorization wars, the, the, the foot trying to come up with a, a long-term uh, uh, piece of legislation that will fund the future system. Right now, we don't know what that's going to look like, but we hope Congress will act soon. What I want to do in just a moment is look at the official forecast that the FAA puts out, because this really sort of sets the stage for some of the four trends I'm going to look at in a moment. Essentially, the FAA is optimistic about the future. They see, particularly for the, uh, for the air transportation sector, they see uh, continued growth out through 2025. Uh, they've recently updated that, done some things. Uh, even with escalating fuel costs, they, uh, they're still optimistic. Basically what they're projecting is that oil prices will increase in the short term, uh, decline through 2014, and then increase at rates lower than inflation through 2025. Uh, commercial air service demand will increase, but at a slower rate than before. Uh, and what we mean by before is before $100 plus barrel of oil. So they see still uh, commercial air service uh, going through a, a con a, basically a contraction, but it's still going to grow. Uh, the mainline carriers essentially will go to smaller aircraft. Uh, regional carriers will increase uh, aircraft size by retiring 50-seat aircraft and transitioning more to the 70 to 90-seat aircraft that are beginning to enter their fleets. So essentially what you're seeing is you're seeing the commercial service airports, I'm sorry, the, the, the commercial, the major uh, commercial airlines, the Deltas, Northwest, and so forth, if they're, merge, if they're not merging, they're looking at their fleets, making strategic decisions on reducing the size of those aircraft, and then once they reduce the size of those aircraft, they're also going to start uh, uh, reducing the number of flights. So essentially, I think uh, just, just as a, if, if you read USA Today or any of the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, newspapers that cover this uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, you're going to see fewer scheduled flights, and, and, and the planes will get crowded and remain crowded.
Uh, what's the general aviation sector look like? The general aviation sector is everything else other than uh, military and, and, and commercial aviation. Uh, basically, it's composed of, of two, two sectors, if you will. That is the sport aviation or those, those individuals either fly for sport or fly for, for personal reasons. Um, the other sector is, of course, uh, business aviation. A lot of companies rely on uh, uh, aircraft, and uh, I'll, I'm going to address that in just a moment. But essentially what uh, the FIA is forecasting is that um, uh, personal recreational use of piston aircraft will remain weak. In fact, over the, 20, uh, the, uh, the, the forecast period, they see less than 1% of growth over the whole period. So that's going to remain flat if not, uh, if you can't, if you, you know, it's going to remain very weak. Uh, business aviation use of turbine aircraft will continue to grow at a more rapid pace uh, over the forecast period. Uh, and I'll show you some numbers in a moment that sort of bear that out. Also, and this is what you're going to hear more about uh, shortly, is the growing market for very light jets. That's another segment of general aviation that's going through a, through a transition right now. Uh, there, there's a lot of a shift that's going to occur from the conventional piston-powered aircraft to aircraft like the very light jets. And uh, I think you're going to see this. Uh, it's go it'll be a slow transition, but I think it's going to be a transition nonetheless. Um, another thing that, uh, that the FAA has, has said will probably occur is what we call the, uh, the emergence of the light sport aircraft. Uh, light sport aircraft are just very light general aviation aircraft. It's basically that these are aircraft that are basically could be used for flight training purposes, but they're aircraft that, that are cheap, less expensive, cheaper to operate, and will probably take up some of the slack of the, uh, of the, the, the piston-powered aircraft that's basically going to reach the end of its, uh, its uh, life cycle and be retired from the fleet. Um, the FAA says that uh, uh, VLJs, light sport aircraft, uh, may reduce demand for traditional piston single-engine aircraft. And uh, they also forecast that the growth in the number of active pilots will remain weak. There we go. Just a couple of supporting numbers. Deliveries of piston aircraft declined 28% between 2007 and 2008. During that same period of time, the delivery of turboprops and business jets increased by 48.3%. So that, that really reinforces and, and supports what the FAA is projecting, is you're going to see a substantial growth in, in business uh, aviation. You're going to see uh, basically a flat or decline. Uh, it's going to be flat or a slight decline in, in, in piston-powered aircraft. So, uh, again, the, the, the segments that we would want to look at in planning our airports in the future is what kinds of airports do we need to accommodate these types of aircraft that we see coming online, both in the commercial service and general aviation sectors. Now, what I'd like to do now is, is sort of transition into the, into the four trends that, uh, that I think bear watching uh, over the next couple of years. Uh, and essentially, it's, it's trying to look beyond the headlines. Let's look at some of the things that, that, that are going to impact us that may not be readily obvious, but they're out there. Now, I started off with oil finery production because, obviously, with today's fuel costs, with, with transportation costs escalating across all segments of transportation, this is, going to, this is going to be important for aviation for several reasons. Also, uh, another issue that we're going to begin to have to grapple with, I think, is reducing aviation and particularly airport emissions. 
Uh, airports have been dealing with environmental issues for a number of years, particularly the commercial service airports. But the uh, uh, the going green trend is going to affect airports. Um, uh, climate change issues are going to affect the way airports operate. And so I think in the future we're going to see airports that are going to have to be uh, uh, more conscious of the kinds of emissions that are generated, not just by the aircraft at the airport, but also by, by airport operational vehicles themselves. Then I'm going to turn to, to, to a few, I guess, of what you might consider the Buck Rogers-type concepts. But these are out there. As Bill said, these are out there. They're happening now. One of them is unmanned aircraft systems, and the other is uh, commercial space travel, spaceports. Um, that's uh, the spaceports is, is is actually here t today, and uh, I'll talk about that uh, as, as one of the last trends that we ought to start uh, paying a little more attention to. Oil, uh, oil refinery production. Uh, we're specifically concerned with jet fuel and aviation gasoline. Those are the only two fuels that are used in the, in the air transportation sector, and they're only manufactured for aviation. You don't find jet fuel being used. It's not a, it's, it's, it's not a diesel fuel. You're not going to find white white could burn in, in say, over-the-road trucks. Uh, you don't find 18-wheelers uh, uh, burning this kind of fuel. So jet fuel and aviation gasoline are manufactured specifically for the aviation industry, air transportation. Well, what does that have to do with an airport? What it can basically do is suggest to state and federal airport system plans and manages the types of airports we build or improve in the future. It can be a, an indicator of the future aviation fleet mix, which in turn uh, helps us in determining uh, airport design needs. For example, as I said a moment ago, if we see the piston-powered fleet, which is, which is fueled by aviation gasoline, if it's on the decline and jet fuel is, is, is and, the, and the aircraft that use jet fuel are becoming more popular to operate, do we need to start looking at our design standards for airports to make certain that those airports can accommodate the types of, of, of aircraft that, bur that, that burn jet fuel? And typically the, the, the airport requirements are, are different for different types of airplanes. I'd uh, like to just give you some background the, uh, on, on, on this. Uh, the Department of Energy and their Energy Information Administration has got some information uh, about um, uh, they've made some projections. They've got some information about aviation gasoline and jet fuel. Um, as I mentioned a moment ago, jet fuel and av gas can only be used in the transportation sector of energy consumption. Jet fuel represents 11.5 percent of the transportation energy uh, demand, and av gas represents less than 1 percent of transportation energy demand. And that's a, fairly, that, that's a fairly low number. And if you look at that in the context of some of the previous information I shared with you, that's probably going to, that demand for that fuel is probably going to remain very flat, if not decline. There's another reason it could, it, it could be an endangered species, is that's because it contains low levels of, of, of lead. Uh, in fact, the fuel is called 100 LL or, or 100 low lead. And there's some concerns about replacing that fuel to get lead content out of the air, uh, replacing that fuel with, with, with other things. In fact, there are uh, engine manufacturers right now that are working with uh, 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 diesel engines uh, to transition uh, into diesel-powered aircraft as opposed to uh, conventional uh, aviation gasoline-burning um, piston engines. Uh, the Department of Energy's forecast through 2030 is that jet uh, fuel demand will increase at a modest rate of about 1.8% over the forecast period, but AF gas will remain flat. 
They also are projecting that, uh, that there will be sufficient consumer demand uh, and refinery capacity for jet fuel. They don't see any threats to jet fuel. But the picture is not as clear for aviation gasoline. First of all, aviation gasoline uses are very price sensitive. When you consider the people that, that, that fly and the purposes for which uh, single-engine, light-twin-engine, piston-powered aircraft are flown, uh, those types of individuals in small companies are very price sensitive. So high, basically what's happening is the high costs are reducing the, the number of flight hours in those types of aircraft. We're already seeing anecdotally uh, people um, moving their aircraft, selling their aircraft, moving their aircraft off of airports, uh, hangars becoming empty that once used to have, uh, have aircraft in them. Now, the next question would be if the costs remain relatively high, uh, demand for avgas will continue to decline. And if demand declines, will refiners continue to produce avgas or shift petroleum fuel stocks used to refine avgas to other forms of fuel? Is that demand? Is the demand going to stay sufficient enough for refiners to justify manufacturing such a small component of their overall output in aviation gasoline? And also, as I mentioned, there's some environmental concerns for reducing lead emissions, and there has been EPA action to limit general aviation uh, lead emissions. Uh, they put out a, uh, a notice proposed rulemaking uh, a year or so ago. Uh, I don't think that's gone very far, but there is, uh, there is uh, uh, an effort underway to look at uh, uh, the lead-containing aviation gasoline and, uh, and do something about it. So, again, aviation gasoline could be uh, what I might call an, an endangered species in, in as far as energy for uh, transportation. Just um, generally some of the, some of the uh, findings. Um, let's see. Well, let me kind of um, start right there and go to the GAO findings because the two kind of tie together. And this is reducing aviation airport emissions. Uh, the GAO recently just uh, came out in May of 2008 that uh, – focused on emissions as part of a broader focus on, on, on going green. And what the GAO found was that <clears throat> excuse me, uh, aviation contributes a modest but growing proportion of the total U.S. emissions. So it's, it's small, but it's, it's there. Uh, the, the emissions that are generated by aircraft and airports um, that are operating contribute to the, to the adverse health and environmental effects. Again, another GAO conclusion. Most of the early FAA focus has been on cleaning up the emissions of aircraft. And so that's been the primary focus right now. How do you clean up the emissions of aircraft? What do you do with engine technology? What do you do with, with other aspects of operation? I think we're going to probably hear a little bit more about that with what, uh, uh, what some of these new navigation systems might be able to do to help uh, control emissions around airports. But now airports are beginning to uh, focus uh, uh, on their airport operations and the role that their operations play in airport quality, so uh, air quality in the, in the vicinity of the airport. So I think this is something that uh, it, it's already occurring, but I think this is going to be something that gets even more attention uh, soon. Now, some of the implications uh, of, of reducing emissions is that, as I mentioned, we use, we use terms and phrases like next gen. That's the next generation. Uh, navigation systems that I'm referring to can help reduce aircraft emissions, and I think Malcolm and y'all probably have, have talked about that indirectly. But uh, there are some things that can be done to reduce aircraft emissions using this new satellite-based uh, navigational technology. 
Um, more airports will begin to incorporate green design concepts into their facilities and operations. Uh, there are already some airports, some of the larger commercial service airports, airports are monitoring air quality in the vicinity of the airports. I think you'll see that trend continue. Um, also, uh, as I said earlier, airports and environmental issues are nothing new to airports. They've dealt with noise issues for years. Water quality has been an issue, so this will be probably more of a natural progression for a lot of airports to move into these areas and just sort of build on what they've already been doing. But still, it will, I think, have an impact on airport design and how we design our systems and so forth. Because, if, for example, if you're experiencing, if you're a major metropolitan area, you have a lot of air traffic. If your airspace is, you have the density of use in your airspace in that area is, is great you may want to start looking at how you disperse that traffic to disperse and improve the, the air quality in that particular area. And, as, you know, the, 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 the thing we're all reading about and hearing about now, reducing the carbon footprint, well, I think airports will, will, will uh, uh, be, be part of that overall uh, uh, effort to uh, improve their um, uh, carbon footprint. Now, here's, 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 here's an interesting one, I think, that uh, is, is catching a lot of people, including the Federal Aviation Administration, by surprise, and that's unmanned aircraft systems. Um, I don't know, Bill, how many you've gotten uh, uh, inquiries about, but I know in Alabama we've already gotten inquiries about facilities locating um, some type of operation on an airport that has unmanned uh, uh, aircraft systems in operation. And it, that takes a lot of coordination with the FAA right now. But um, the, the, what, what's occurring is that with the, with the introduction by the military of unmanned aircraft systems into their operations, either for observational purposes or deliver rockets and bombs, that's now beginning to open up uh, possibilities and opportunities in either the private sector or the government sector at the state and local level. Um, it, it's, it's, it, they're suitable, again, for, for a lot of missions. Um, they're presently being used by federal agencies for scientific research purposes, uh, security, uh, those sorts of things. So the federal government is just beginning to, to incorporate them into some of their thing, homeland security. Um, local governments are now becoming interested uh, in unmanned aircraft systems uh, for law enforcement purposes or even firefighting in some cases. And then one of the areas that we've identified for the private sector is in, in, in aerial photography for uh, uh, real estate purposes. But it, as you can see, it has a whole range of applicability. And it's really going to change, I think, the interface between the airport and the airspace in the future. Again, uh, citing a GAO study, I found that UAS has posed a wide range of technological, regulatory workload and intergovernmental coordination challenges. Uh, the big focus right now is how does that unmanned aircraft system access the national air transportation system? And in order to understand that, you have to understand that right now aviation is, is particularly in terminal areas, what we call terminal areas, airport areas, a lot of aviation relies on, on what we call a C and B scene philosophy. You've got the pilots sitting in one aircraft that when they break out of the clouds, they can look around and see other aircraft. So, so at some point in, in flight, you're relying on a C and B scene uh, uh, type of, a, of an approach to it. Well, if, you, if you've got one aircraft that doesn't have a pilot on board that aircraft that can look out the window and identify traffic that's called out to them by air traffic control, how does that aircraft become integrated into the system in a safe manner? 
that is a major concern right now of, of the FAA. And as I said, it, it's catching a lot of people off guard, particularly the, the rate of growth of these systems uh, uh, and, and, and the utilization of them. Right now, there's no FAA regulations that, 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 that govern or restrict the use of, of UASs. Right now, it's on a case-by-case approval. Essentially, what they do is they will approve a flight into uh, in, into the airspace, and it's done on a case by case basis. So it's uh, it's again really catching a lot of us off guard a little bit. Now, what what do UASs? What, what kinds of questions does that pose to those of us that are are airport, in airport system planning and, and designing it? Number one, what types of airports we need in the future to accommodate UASs? Keep in mind that a UAS can range in size from four pounds uh, to, to well over 25,000 pounds. There are literally uh, these unmanned aircraft systems that can be launched by hand. So do you need something special for that? What, what's going to be required uh, for those size aircraft? Now, obviously, the 25,000-pound unmanned aircraft systems will use facilities that are much more likened to the conventional airports. But we still have to kind of ask ourselves the questions, are they going to require any kinds of unique things that we have to build into those airports to accommodate those kinds of operations in the future? Do we need to plan for separate airports for UASs? Again, do we want to segregate them from the airspace that other aircraft are using, primarily for safety reasons? Do we want to, 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 to begin to look at it that way? Will these airports require special types of facilities or equipment to accommodate them? Um, how will they fit in with pilot aircraft? Again, that, that's sort of what I alluded to earlier. Will there be uh, uh, requirements for air-to-air -air or air-to-ground communications? Right now, when you're, when you're flying, you hear the other aircraft in the area over the radios that, are, that you're tuned into and the frequencies you're tuned in. But what if a UAS is out there flying and the pilot is sitting in a, in a control room 500, 600 miles away. Uh, what kinds of communication? Now, again, the next generation can have some, uh, some, some promise for helping address that, but it's all going to have to be incorporated into, uh, into it over time. These kinds of things can't occur overnight unless you're willing to spend tons and tons of money to do it. Uh, and then how will airport managers uh, respond to UAS operations uh, at their airports? Will there be any kinds of, of rules and regulations, procedures that airport managers will need to impose? So this really gets it sort of a, uh, an airport management type issue rather than, than the actual operations, the starting up, the taxing, the, the taking off, and so forth. Now, the last trend I'd like to talk about just for a minute, I sort of threw this in here for Florida's benefit because Florida was one of the ones that uh, has, has sort of led the way, if you will, in, in spaceports. But we're hearing a lot now in contemporary news reports about commercial space travel. Well, to just sort of break it down a little bit, uh, when, you, when you're hearing things about commercial space travel right now, you're, you're hearing primarily about the tourism sector. You know, Richard Branson is, 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 is investing money to take tourists up for $200,000 flight uh, into low Earth orbit and come back down. And, and, and that's one type of operation. Those are primarily horizontal launch type operations. The other type that you don't hear so much about because it's rather mundane 
if you can call going into outer space mundane, is, is launching uh, satellites, navigational satellites like GPS uh, satellites or communication satellites. When we talk on the cell phone, when we do things like that, a lot of the communication goes through satellite. Now, a lot of the vertical launchers is delivering the, the small rockets. They're delivering uh, commercial payloads into, either, uh, in, into at least low Earth orbit. They're not going to come back down. But the horizontal launch... I think is where we're going to be needing to take a real close look at in the future because uh, these are the types of vehicles that are going to take off and they're probably going to return to the same location or they're going to return to a location that is very similar to them somewhere else. But again, uh, um, our concern is, is more the horizontal launch operations and, and their effect on airport systems and airport design. Um, just in a, in, a, in a phrase, the race is on. As I said, Florida, and, and Bill, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, you established your spaceport authority in 1989. It was dormant for several years. Uh, it, it was revitalized and re-energized a couple of years ago. Uh, that's up and running now. And so with, with, uh, with the trend that Florida started, we're now seeing other states begin to get involved in, in competing for, um, uh, for, for spaceports and so forth. As of 2006, uh, the FAA had issued licenses to Alaska, California, they issued two, Florida, Oklahoma, Virginia. Other states are either developing or planning spaceports. And, and I didn't know this until I, I was preparing for this, but uh, Alabama has a spaceport uh, in, in the planning stages right now by one of our universities in Alabama. So, so we're, we're, we're looking at, a, at, a, at, at, at the possibility of a spaceport. Uh, but a lot of states are beginning to jump on the bandwagon. And, and it's, didn't put it up on the slide, but New Mexico is one of the more recent states that's sort of gotten involved in this. And that's one of the ones that other states are either developing or planning spaceports. Texas is another one. But, uh, but New Mexico was trying to uh, bring in a commercial operator, and they went to their voters and had their voters vote on raising taxes to spend $200 million to build a spaceport. Uh, the, the vote was, was successful. As they started their, their effort to, uh, to plan, design, develop this, uh, this site, uh, the company that was coming to town said, you know, Florida, Australia may be a better spot for us. So, you know, there's, 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 I, my caution there would be there's, there may be a lot of people out there that are wanting to do these things in the private sector, the commercial sector, but I don't know how fast we want to jump on the bandwagon to spend a lot of money to, uh, to do that. But uh, a lot of states are seeing this as a, uh, an economic development tool to attract aerospace transportation investment. I, at least from Alabama's perspective, right now we're seeing a lot of investment in aerospace industries. It may not be spaceport-type vehicles, but aviation and aerospace is a, is a growing economic development sector for the state of Alabama. So, again, we're seeing a, a lot of investment across the aerospace spectrum, uh, either building commercial satellites, the launch vehicles to get, get those uh, satellites in the outer space. So, again, it's, it's something that states are looking at, but uh, I think we have to look at that very cautiously and see how it fits in with, uh, with our other um, uh, uh, systems. 
issues to consider for spaceports, um, uh, how will they fit into uh, state and regional air transportation systems? Uh, are they going to be horizontal launch facilities, vertical launch facilities, et cetera? Uh, what will be the design requirements of spaceports in the future? An airport, if you go out to, today and build an airport, we have to put runway protection zones and runway safety areas off the ends of the runways and so forth. It's very similar to designing an interstate highway with the rights of way and, the, and so forth. But if you have an aircraft that, that, that can fly higher, farther, and faster, what requirements do you have for protecting people off the end of that runway? Those, I think, are some serious issues. We, of course, the FAA doesn't have any design standards uh, like that for spaceports right now. Uh, as a, as a slide showed a moment ago, uh, they're considering that on a case-by-case basis. Uh, I don't know how that VLJ, that must be a subliminal message that, that, that Malcolm put in there, but I don't know how that got in there. But will spaceports compete for funding traditionally used to fund conventional airports? Bill, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's been an issue in Florida, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it is an issue, but uh, so far uh, we've only funded traditional airports with the okay. with our program. Okay. So those are the kinds of like, where's the money going to come from uh, to, to, to fund the construction, development, design, and so forth of, of these systems? The other question is, since Florida has really gotten a a start uh, well in advance of a lot of other states, can the Florida model be used elsewhere? Uh, I think that's a real good question for those states that are are looking at this uh, to really do, is to to look at Florida as a a case study to see uh, how to do it and and, and to move forward with it. Is there sufficient demand to justify the construction? Of, of publicly operated spaceports, or should the risk of funding spaceports be left to the private sector? Uh, I think that's a you know the, a lot of discussion now about public-private partnerships and so forth in, in in the transportation field. Is this an area for for, for private sector investment? Uh, my in, intuition tells me if you don't see a lot of private sector groups jumping into it. Is is that really a good investment for a for a government to make right now, particularly with uh, the way budgets are? Several concluding thoughts. Um, as I started out, as, as, as airport system planners and managers, uh, we often focus on the here and now. We're often focused on those things that have, have an impact on us immediately. And, and sometimes we kind of forget to step back and start taking a look at those things that may be just over the horizon, but those things that, that we need to be aware of so that we can begin to incorporate them into our thinking about airports and how our airports and our air transportation system in general fits into the overall uh, national transportation system, be it roads, be it uh, interstate highways. It's all interconnected because when we go to an airport, when we uh, leave an airport, it's always on a road. You can almost consider that airport as part of what connects ground-based transportation systems. These are just four things that I've come up with. I'm sure there are a lot of others out there that uh, that could come up if we really got sort of a roundtable discussion going on this issue. But really just talking about the four that I've mentioned are, are some of the things that I think that uh, we all want to sort of start looking at. But hopefully it will just kind of encourage or prompt or tease some thought uh, about those things that as uh, system planners we need to be aware of. Bill, again, thank you for hosting the uh, session today. Thanks, State of Florida, Florida DOT, for having us down. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.